want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's look together in Acts chapter 4. And our scripture reading this morning will begin in verse 32. Now, for most of you that made you want some coffee, right? Well, for those of us who grew up in a Baptist church, uh, we often equated fellowship with coffee and donuts. I actually grew up believing that somewhere in the Bible, under the word fellowship, you had to have coffee and donuts, right? For me, it was more probably coffee and a piece of cheesecake, more than a donut. But the fact of the matter is, in our world, especially around the church, fellowship is a well-worn Christian word. And unfortunately, it's lost its biblical connotation and or meaning in our world today, especially in regard to how it unfolds for us in the book of Acts. I think when you get to verse 32, this is Luke's way of giving his summary led by the Holy Spirit of God for us to look into the church life. Now remember, they're on the heels of an incredible, uh, an amazing prayer. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. And the Bible tells us that the place was shaken where they were. God did this in response to his praying people. When they received persecution, they didn't write their legislator. They didn't send out letters to the government and say, we just can't handle this persecution. They began to do what they knew they were supposed to do, and that's to pray. And in their prayer, they began to understand, or their understanding led them to pray that, God, you are actually fulfilling your word right here in our midst in fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, why the nations rage. And so what did they pray for? Uh, Not the menial things that we pray for often that fill our minds, but they prayed that they might have boldness to speak, that God Almighty would look upon their threats, that he would... uh, They prayed for mission. They prayed for purpose in their praying. They prayed the Scripture, which is the best way to pray. And I think Luke actually brings out for us not only the power of God working and operative through the Word and the Holy Spirit and prayer... But then he starts talking about the power of real Christian fellowship and what that is supposed to look like. And so beginning in verse 32, this is what he's going to say to us. Not only did they go out with boldness to speak the word, but, and they did that in the demonstration and power of God. But then as the church convened together corporately as a body, the fact is the power of God was demonstrated through real Christian fellowship under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Now listen to the reading. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Just note that. Full number. If you've been tracking through the book of Acts, we're probably around 15,000 people here in the church in Jerusalem. Now consider that statement again. Now the full number... Of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. 
and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had need. And now Luke's going to give us exhibit A in church life of someone who has a loose grip on things once Jesus Christ transformed his life. And that is Barnabas. Of course, the scripture says, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. In other words, Barnabas is his nickname, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now check this out. Luke speaks of this multitude of believers. Again, if you're tracking with me, uh, somewhere around 15,000 believers are coming together corporately. Uh, they've, they've been led by a single voice, singular in prayer. Everybody corporately agreeing with that prayer. And then the Bible tells us that they're in one heart and one soul. Now, folks, this is miraculous, isn't it? This has to be the work of the Holy Spirit of God when you have in, a, in excess of 15,000 people and they're in one heart and one soul. 15,000 plus people gathered anywhere with any measure of unity is a work of God. And here you have 15,000 predominantly Jewish people. And the Bible says that they're all gathering together with one heart, one soul, which is nothing short of the manifestation of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And here the Charlie Church is in blessed unity with Christ and each other. The vertical is right, and the horizontal dimension is right. So they had the same Savior. They had the same Messiah. They shared the same faith. They shared the same hope. And that bond was deeper than any relationship they had ever known to that point. You say, what about family? doesn't compare. Unless that family knows Jesus as Lord. This fellowship was deeper than anything they had ever known before. It was profound unity. And check this out. In the entire assembly. Aristotle once said, friendship is two bodies and one soul. Well, how about this? The early church was something far greater than that. Aristotle probably could never have imagined 15,000 bodies making one soul. But that's what you have in the text. There was this awesome, prevailing environment of unity and of the Spirit. Each person understanding from God that they had been reconciled to Him. But that's not it. That's not the only thing you're reconciled. Once you're reconciled to God, you're also reconciled to one another. It is through the work of Christ and His reconciling work and the Spirit's work indwelling us that He knits people together through the gospel. This is utterly profound, and the world knows nothing of this kind of unity. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can erase divisions that are present because of our human natures. And don't look at me so spiritual, because you've got a human nature, and your human nature is prejudiced and biased, and, and by nature, it would rather be divisive than unified. But Jesus Christ has the ability to transform our souls and bring people from all different kinds of diversity and, and uh, ethnic groups and tribes from every tongue, whatever the, the case may be, he can bring them together through the gospel. It's an, une it's, a, it's an unexplainable bond unless you know Jesus. And then you begin to understand it. And so this is truly a pattern of how Luke is going to show us what real... The power of real Christian fellowship 
looks like. You are made to live with God's people with God. That's how God has designed it. Distance, isolation, separation, those are results of the fall. God designed us to live in community with one another as a family, with God as the head. This was his design in the Garden of Eden. That's where we were before the fall. Okay? And so it was not only his design in the garden, it's his design for the church. And if you've read your Bible lately, you'll find out this is going to be his design through all the endless ages. It's for us to be in community life. Now, most of you know that I live out in the country. I like it. I like being out in the country. If I had my covetous desires, I would want 500 acres out in the country where I could hunt deer and do everything I wanted to do, romp and stomp. And I, I like where I am now, obviously. I love it to have a little bit of land and live out in the country, just, just out there by myself. Now, I take Natalie and the kids too, right? You know, I don't, I don't mind having them out there. But I want to remind you of something. God is not a country dweller. Let that sink in. Our God is a city dweller. Got it? The new heavens and the new earth, that will be the center of the new Jerusalem, and it's called the city of God. Please understand, where the gospel is central and the Holy Spirit is operative and active in a healthy and holy community, we won't be in the mindset of being country dwellers. We understand that we actually dwell in a community of faith, eye to eye, shoulder to shoulder. So Luke now makes this statement. Not only now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything was his that belonged to him, they had everything in common. In other words, nobody is in the early church asserting his or her ownership or the rights of ownership with their belongings. Now, folks, to create a community where you're in unity and you're in fellowship, that's a pretty impressive thing. But to also create among people the ability for them to loosen their grip on possessions, that's pretty impressive. Because you're an American. And most of us have a tight grip on the things that we have. So there's an epic example. You know, we, time after time of, of our tendency to grab hold of things and not let that go. And hold them tightly. You know, preacher, I've spent all my life getting the things that I have. They're mine. In the South, we would say, you get all you can. You can all you get. And you sit on the rest. Right? We have all this stuff. There, there's an incredible, profound illustration of this. It's going to be one of the most profound things I've ever said to you since I've been here. It's found in the movie Finding Nemo. <laughs> right? You've got these seagulls. Y'all remember what they say? There you go. Mine, mine, mine. And I'm sitting there watching that thinking, hmm, that's what the congregation is usually all about in church life. Mine, mine, mine. And we're just consumed. That's, that shows the depravity of our, of our hearts. We're born into this world saying, mine, mine, mine. We live and breathe with a tight clutch and grip on things. And yet, when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in that unifying power, we lose our grip on things. And our souls are 
manipulated and massaged by the Lord to where we see things differently. And people begin to loosen their grip on things. Why? Because we belong to God and each other. And in the context of the beauty and glory of the gospel, as the song says, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's what happens when you come to know Jesus. Now, we realize that God has given us these things, but He's given you these things to share with others. Now, I know you didn't come to church wanting to hear this. But I'm just telling you what the text says, right? Have I said anything that's not given in this passage about all things in common, giving things away, sharing things? If there's anything that we middle-class Americans struggle with, it is the raw, unabated, bent toward materialism. That's the way we are, every one of us. We are fine when we hear the essentials of the gospel, Christian duties, responsibilities, But there are two things that I've noticed in pastoring now for over 20 years. Two things that cause people to bristle and to back off, put up their defenses. You know what these two things are? Time and possessions. The preacher, you're doing okay with your preaching unless you, as long as you stay away from these two things. Preacher, I've worked hard for these things. You don't realize how much I've labored to have this or that. And Luke tells us that when the power of the transforming work of Jesus touches your life, that you will let goods go. I heard not one single amen. You just indicted yourself. Right? You will let goods go when you're transformed by the gospel. Here was their policy. They had everything in common. Now, some of you are thinking, well, this sounds like communism. No, it's not. It is an authentic demonstration of Christian love that manifests itself in sharing your goods with others. Communism says, what's yours is mine. Christianity says, what's mine is yours. Major, major, major difference. They shared these things. They didn't share their ownership. They owned things But they shared it with everybody who had need. What an awesome understanding. And I think when we lose our grip on things, that's one clear indication that we are one as a body. That we're not holding tightly to things. Communism, again, says what yours is mine, but that's not what Christianity says. You know, when you stand at the marriage altar, I I remember thinking about Zach, right? Emily, yeah, this is coming up for y'all. Y'all didn't pay any attention to anything until I said that. As a matter of fact, Zach cannot wait until I say, you may kiss the bride, right? Uh, Not now, not now, all right? But when you stand at the marriage altar, you know, I told Natalie before we got married, I said, honey, here's the deal. What's mine is mine and what yours is mine, right? No, that's not the way it works, is it? No, we, we learned that that's reciprocal in marriage, that What is mine is hers, and what is hers is mine, and that's the way we live it out. The unity is manifested in the church family when we lose our grip on things. Write this down. Authentic gospel proclamation and experience brings us to the place where we own things, but the things don't own us anymore, and we are willing to let them go. That's what it means to be affected by the gospel. In verse 33, Luke says this, There was powerful preaching and great grace. They were giving witness to the resurrection. And again, remember, when he says resurrection, he's not excluding the rest of the gospel. 
He's given you an inclusive word that includes everything to do with the gospel. Life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's just that the writer is referring to the resurrection to express the totality of the gospel. Now, folks, listen to me. This was a gospel-preaching church. They were preaching the gospel. And great power was accompanying the preaching of the word. And so think about this for a moment. Listen to what picture Luke is painting for us in the early church. There was this awesome unity of one heart, one soul. There was this incredible environment of giving and sharing with one another as people had need. And then the the hub of all of it was the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel, of course, was being preached to lost people. Right, church family? They were going out boldly and proclaiming the word. But the gospel was also preached in the church. Did you know that God is rightly adorned and the Holy Spirit is honored when we brag on Jesus and preach the gospel inside of the church walls? You can't hear enough of the gospel. And I guess through the years that that I'm your pastor, which I hope it's till I croak, the fact of the matter is you're going to hear a lot about the gospel. Folks, we can never move away from the gospel. It has to be the central aspect of all that we do. And we see that that's what marks a holy church. We don't preach the gospel just on occasion and say, well, in a moment in time, you trusted Jesus and you're putting all your stock on that. If you're putting all your stock on that and you're not more like Christ today, like the songs we've been singing, then that one moment in time, you might have made a profession, but you didn't get a possession. Unless there's a change in your life. So that's why the gospel needs to be preached. Not only because of the witness of the, of the gospel and how it changes lives. But folks, the gospel. Gospel preaching strengthens the fellowship of the church. It adorns the gospel. It binds people together. And of course, Luke says there's great grace upon them. And as I studied commentators about this, you know, there was a varying degrees of what this means to have great grace upon you. You know what I think it means? I think the actual grace of God was upon them powerfully. It's not real hard to figure that out. The grace of God. So you get the sense, because they had authentic Christian sharing and and powerful preaching, that God was pouring out grace on this church. You know why? Because it was so selfless. It was more about Jesus and more about the centrality of the gospel. And because of this, great grace was upon that church. Grace was flowing out of those things. Fellowship, sharing, proclamation of the gospel. That that kind of koinonia and fellowship God was using as a channel for His grace. Grace was flowing out of the preaching like a mighty fountain. You don't need to underestimate the power of genuine Christian fellowship. Flowing out into the unity of the Spirit through the Spirit-empowered preaching as a channel of grace to those who come to this church. No pun intended, but when you walk in, we ought to feel the Spirit so thick you could cut it with a knife. We ought to sense that. Not because of a building. This is not the temple. You are the temple. But God's people have come into this church to worship Him, to convene corporately to worship. And God uses the preached Word as a channel of grace to those who are here. In light of that statement, we need to ask a question. Where was this grace poured out? It's in the assembly of God's people. Where was the grace of God flowing freely? It's 
It's happening in the assembly of Christ's people. It's in the fellowship of believers where the Word of God is preached in the Spirit and the grace of God. And that Spirit and the grace of God is absolutely overwhelming and abundant. So let me suggest something to you. Bad things happen when you don't go to church. So that's not fair, preacher. I can get as much of grace from God in my individual ISO life as, as you can get at that church. I beg to differ. I beg to differ with you. That's not true. Well, preacher, I can worship out on the ninth green, popping that golf ball, playing army golf, left, right, left, right. It ought to especially be left, right, left, right for you who play on Sunday morning at the time of worship hour, right? I had a guy come to me one time and said, preacher, I got this bass tournament coming up this Sunday. I said, well, I'll pray for you. I pray you won't catch a thing, <laughs> Right? Preacher, don't pray like that. Well, I mean, you shouldn't tell me you're going to miss church. (laughs) Think about this. Think of what happened to poor old Thomas when he missed one gathering, when Jesus showed up. Huh, got tagged with a name for endless age, Doubting Thomas. I'm kind of being funny, but I am serious. He missed a gathering, did he not? Unless I thrust my hand through your side and see the scars, I won't believe. Look, folks... I'm being funny somewhat, but great grace was upon the assembly. You don't see this kind of wording anywhere else in the Holy Word of God like you see it here. Great grace was upon the community as it came together corporately to worship the King. You can't get that individually. You just can't if you're tracking through the Word. So, I hope that you're absolutely convinced that when you miss church, you miss out. You miss out on the channel of blessing. The grace of God flowing out through the manifestation of His Spirit, through the preaching of the Word, and sharing together, and koinonia, and fellowship. So, I think we put ourselves in a position of barrenness, and wilderness wondering, when we cut ourselves off from the place where grace is not only, but grace is most abundantly poured out. Notice again verse 34. As this new community of faith began to grow, they took seriously the mandates given to them years and years ago. Won't spend much time on this, but you know where it came from? Deuteronomy 15. That's exactly what the true Israel of God was supposed to do, was take care of the needs of those who had a need. And God gives strict details. This is how, Israelites, you are to take care of your own. And guess what? They did a really good job, right? Because they didn't, they didn't even accept the true bread of life when he was sent to them. So Israel dropped the ball here. But the new Israel, those who knew Jesus as Lord and Savior, picked up the ball and said, You know what? In Deuteronomy 15, you said we ought to take care of our own. And that's exactly what the church did. You know why? Because they were transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about just some jewelry being sold. Luke actually mentions the largest assets that we can possibly hold on to. Now, I know this makes you a little uncomfortable, makes me uncomfortable, but houses and land. And folks, this was not written in the first first century church bylaws. This was not compulsory. No apostle ever stood up and said, hey, you individually, go sell your house and give it to the poor. So it wasn't compulsory. When there was a need, the people were compelled and convicted by the Holy Spirit of God to meet those needs. This is what's going on when the work of the Holy Spirit is free in a particular church. They were compelled by God to do so. They actually went through a legal process to do it. And that's what that terminology means. They laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. 
That's an expression of a legal transaction that took place in the church where they transferred their authority of possessions over to the apostles. And they said to the leaders, you do with it what God Almighty leads you to do with it. They transferred their ownership. So real Christian fellowship always demands time and attention. Just think how ordered they were in doing this. I must say that I am pleased to this point with how this particular church is responding when people have needs. I've been impressed with that. As far as labor would go and dollars and cents, you know, we we have to come back to this, though, time and time again. Let me remind you of something. We ought to have a swelling and growing benevolent budget at this church. We ought to have a growing ministry care budget where we can step out in a moment's notice and meet a need for somebody, right? And you know how I feel about our missions budget. It ought to be growing. Uh, every chance you get, you ought to have that in your mind that, God, I can, oh, there's some extra God has blessed us with. Let's use it to bless the nations for the gospel's sake. So, but that benevolent part, there, folks, our church has serious needs. There are people, I'm not talking about the physicality, I'm talking about there are people in this body right now that have serious needs. And it's our responsibility to care for them. It's not Donald Trump's responsibility. It's not the Social Security check that's supposed to take care of them. We're supposed to step up. And I know for most people you say, well, you do get Social Security. And you do. And there may be times when we have to take that in consideration. But the fact of the matter is, when they had a need, they met it. That's what the church looked like. Now, he's going to give you a quintessential model of a real fellowshipper. Y'all ready for him? The text says his name is actually Joseph. We know him as Barnabas. Uh, That was a nickname. He receives a nickname from the apostles. Now, if you would have lived during the apostolic era, what kind of nickname would you have received? Miser! (laughs) Hypocrite! Yeah, I'm guilty of all of them, right? Church skipper. Yeah, I don't know what your nickname would have been. But Barnabas means son of encouragement. And boy, will he ever end up playing a major role in the book of Acts. And in the the verses, we had the generosity of Barnabas as exhibit A in the early church. Man, did the gospel not transform this dude or what? Just... The gospel gripped his heart and transformed him, sanctified him, and he generously and sacrificially gave. And in the realm of fellowship, he is a model for us. Incidentally, Barnabas is going to be contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira in, verse five, in chapter 5. Are y'all awake? And oh, what a contrast that is. It's striking. It is Remarkable to look into the early church. It wasn't a perfect church. Uh, There was some hypocrisy going on in this church. It didn't last long, right? And we're going to see that in a few weeks. And you say, a few weeks, yes. uh, I will be away this coming Sunday doing a wedding and a revival. And then the next week is Mother's Day. So I don't think you want to hear about Ananias and Sapphira on Mother's Day, right? (laughs) But it is an awesome passage. Listen to the contrast. A man who was transformed by the grace of God, who had a loose grip on things, who 
gave generously, sold that piece of land, gave sacrificially versus Ananias and Sapphira who lied. They wanted the recognition without the sacrifice. So it's absolutely intriguing to look into it. Do we have hypocrites in the church? You better believe it. Do we have interpersonal struggles? Yes, we do. But this is an incredible picture of the fellowship of the early church and how God empowered that fellowship. Two quick things and we're done. First, Christian fellowship is a community relationship. That's the application I want you to think about. Christian fellowship is a community fellowship or relationship. Think about this. It's not about coffee and donuts. I like these things, right? Maybe there's a little bit of sanctification even in coffee and donuts. Might you think? But the fact is, the emphasis falls first in the early church in regard to fellowship, not as an activity. Are y'all listening? Please hear that. The fellowship, community, communal life of the church doesn't fall upon the use of an activity. But it fell upon the relationships lived out in community life. Not just, hey, what else can we do over at First Baptist to draw a crowd and, and fellowship together and cook fish and coffee and donuts. Activities in and of themselves, they're okay. They're never a means of grace because God, if there's any changing in the church, God does it. But the fact is, where is the emphasis? It's on relationships lived out in community life. One heart, one soul. That's the true definition of koinonia and fellowship. It's the sharing together in joint participation and partnership as we share together with the focus upon Jesus Christ and about the gospel and about what he can accomplish. It's a partnership in God's word. It's a partnership in the grace of God because we've all been recipients of the life-transforming grace of God. We have a partnership in meeting together. We have a partnership in one another's needs inside this body and to a world outside of this body who's lost without Christ. And as followers of Christ, our fellowship must be powerful. Why? Because it is powerful. It is powerful. Consider how powerful the cross of Christ is to change a life. Enough said, right? This Christian fellowship is powerful because it is powerful. We must understand that in Jesus Christ we have a bond in Him that is so incredibly powerful that it creates genuine relationship. Now, folks, it is absolutely, thoroughly unchristian to say that you're a Christian and to stand off aloof and antisocial and distant and far removed from anybody in isolation. That's unchristian. Hello? It is unchristian for us to have, I'm going to shut my garage door and shut the world out. That's totally contrary to what this church body is supposed to be and what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ says. There is not one square inch reserved in the holy word of God for a lone ranger Christian. Not one square inch. The concept of living together your life as a Christian, life together under the word. Is what the Word teaches. There's no ISO-Christianity. Y'all watch the NBA or basketball? You know, when the players play ISO, that means they're a one-man team. Isolation, out on the wing, shooting the basketball, not distributing the ball too often. Well, when it comes to living for Christ, you can't live ISO. God did not make you that way. Isolation is an unbiblical concept. You're not redeemed to live in isolation. You were redeemed to live in community. And let me remind you that we will together 
be in community for all eternity. You say, well, preacher, I don't like people. Well, folks, do you think God is going to supply you with 20 acres in heaven and the new heaven and the new earth so that you can live in isolation? Now, folks, I want to tell you something. Read your Bible. He's going to place you right in the middle of a city. Eyeball to eyeball, shoulder to shoulder with redeemed saints. That's where you're going to be. Get used to it. Start living like you've been redeemed by Christ and set aside in a redeemed family for Him. So, Christian fellowship is community relationship. Okay? Uh, Let me just give kudos to where I should. I want to tell you something. Chris Dixon is a weirdo. Right? (laughs) Y'all know that, don't you? But I'm telling you, he's one of the most relational people I've ever met. He doesn't meet a stranger. He doesn't mind talking to you. Right? He'll do it. And, and he loves to invest in people's lives. You know why? He's a disciple maker. He got something right when he read the Bible. Right? He understands community life. And we all could take a big dose of that. Right? And be more about community and relationship and loving people. That's what the church looks like. Number two, Christian fellowship is vital for the life of the church. Not only is it community relationship, that's what true fellowship is. Y'all got that? True, genuine Christian fellowship is community relationship, all brought together by Christ. And then understand this, it's vital. And here's where we see that important importance. This is not some kind of interesting cultural phenomena or trend. And it would be very easy for us to say, you know what? That was good for their day. But we're way past that kind of living because we're sophisticated in America. Now, it would be real easy. Some of you probably thought that. Man, it was just, this was just a cultural setting. Surely it has no bearing on us today. We don't really, we should not really think of church life like this today, should we? Please understand something, folks. We live in a fellowship challenge culture. We love our privacy. We love our individualism. And we have to fight against that in our country. We also love our stuff. I just wonder how many apostles would have thought, <laughs> what the number of apostles would have thought about the church that loves its privacy, rugged individualism, and all of its stuff. You ever stop in your prayer time and think about things like that? God, what do you really think about our attitude toward things? Not just individually, but how about corporately as a body? There were no fewer distractions as well back then. You say, well, it was easier for them. They didn't have anything to do. They didn't have an iPad. I mean, they didn't have uh, uh, cable TV, and they didn't have, uh, what's the latest video board games? I can't remember these. Xbox something, 25, I don't know. But they didn't have all these things. And you're, you're you're just sitting there saying, well, you know, they didn't have all that stuff to do, so it was so easy for them to come together. Well, I want to remind you that the distractions were just as many then. Their temptations to individualism was just as big. Their protectiveness over their privacy was just as significant. But this was a church that loved to gather together. They loved to share their things. You know why? Because they met Christ. That was the difference that Jesus made. And the force that bound these people together was something that only God Almighty could do. God did this. And we're prone to think that in the first century they had more time on their hands. Really? How many of the apostles do you know that had a microwave? 
How about a washing machine? Folks, have you stopped and thought about how much time it takes? Some of you here that heard Joshua's last farewell address in the Bible. <clears throat> right? I've just been. Some of you, older generation, you know what it's like to have to wash those clothes and not have a dryer and hang. And we're sitting here thinking, oh, they, they had so much time on their hands. Baloney! They didn't, folks. Most of those people worked from sunup to sundown, but yet they took time in communal life to, to spend that time under the Word of God, listening to the voice of God in their midst, communal life, and look, great grace was upon them. You know what we really say when we say we don't have time today? <laughs> this is an indictment against the preacher and you too. What we're really saying is, God, I don't have enough leisure time on my hands. Let's be honest. When you say, I'm too busy and I don't have time, what you're really saying is, mm, I'd like a few more nights at the Red Oak Lodge, Big Oak Lodge in Branson. Or, Lord, I just don't have time to hook up that bath boat. Ooh, that hurt. Or I don't have time to climb the tree with my deer rifle. Or, you know, is that not true? Wave at me. Yes, that's what we mean by I don't have time. What we really mean is I don't have time to do the things I want to do in this world. I don't have time to enjoy all that God, or, well, God has given it to you, but I just don't have time to do this. So God, give me more time. Look, you had as much time today, you have as much time today as they had then. But they made it a priority, and that was the difference. I want you to know this morning that fellowship is the greenhouse of grace. That's what this text is saying. Fellowship is the greenhouse of grace. It is in the community relationship that we experience the Spirit's work and the unity of the Spirit, the power of the Word, the meeting spiritual and physical needs. And without authentic Christian fellowship, we will wither and die. You ever thought about why missionaries love the fellowship so much? Oh, they know what it's like to be on the trenches, out in the trenches. And you say, well, why are we going on a foreign mission trip? Well, if nothing else, to stand side by side with those who endeavor on foreign fields and hold their hand and say to them, you know what, I'm with you. If for no other reason to get on a plane, that's one of them. To show that unity of the Spirit and our calls for Christ and Him going to the nations is greater than anything we could ever possibly imagine. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, well, pastor, I'm good. Spiritually speaking, I'm fine. But they never darken the door of a community relationship in a church. You know what I would say to that? You're a liar. I hate to be that point blank. But there's no way you're okay if you're not with a community of faith if you're saved. If you're saved, there's no way you're okay spiritually. If you are okay, then the Bible's wrong. Right? If you say, I, I don't have to have any Christian fellowship and I'm good, I'm growing spiritually, don't believe it. Impossible, according to the Word. And here's, here's the ending of the fellowship sermon. Would you make it a priority? I know there are extenuating circumstances. Some of you are working on Sunday. Hallelujah. Praise God you got a job. That's not what the preacher's saying. Okay? Some of you have disabilities and illnesses, and you, you can't get here every time. Folks, you know what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about priority. I'm talking about the priority of what it means to convene together as a corporate body, to share with one another, to love 
one another. To not want our own agenda fulfilled all the time, but to look toward Christ's agenda. So for some of you that are born-again believers, I'm saying, hey, just listen to the Word and make Christian fellowship a priority in your life. Y'all got that one? And for you, if you're lost, there's no fellowship without relationship. It all begins with Jesus. The Bible says, as many as received Him... Yeah, the the alarm is going off. And it's the alarm from the Holy Father. (laughs) Saying to you, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. There it is, relationship. It all starts with knowing Jesus. It all starts not with praying a prayer, not with sentimentality. Hey, I just believe this. It begins with a true relationship. That means you've turned... You've repented of your sin, and you believed in Christ Jesus, the Lord. Meaning He's Lord and Savior. Uh, As we say to children sometimes, that means He's the boss of everything. He's the leader. He's your God and Savior. So maybe today that's exactly what you need to do in this invitation time. Ask Brother David to come, and let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. and God, uh, Lord, this is close to my heart because I know what people miss By not being in fellowship. Lord, it's certainly not to draw a crowd because crowds can come and not all of them are going to hear. Lord, the reason for it is, Father, to have, Father, genuine, powerful Christian fellowship. That's what I desire for our church. God, would you give it to me? And Lord, would you give it to our fellow believers? God, would we sense your spirit working and the power of your spirit at work in this church life? And Father, for the individual here today that may be lost, God, would you resurrect their hearts? Would you quicken their spirit? Would you make them alive in you? May they repent of their sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, would you plant in them this profound Christian unity and fellowship that can be found nowhere else in this world? It's only the peace that Jesus gives. Lord, would you grant this? In your name we pray. Amen.